This morning we are going to continue in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13, but I'm also going to ask you to turn in your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'm not going to exegete that text, but it's a wonderful example of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. And so let's first go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and in chapter 20, facing a great threat and a wonderful response from the Lord. And we'll see what standing in the strength of the Lord looks like. Let's give our attention to Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat's prayer. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with, some, with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came <clears throat> to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham by uh, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. <clears throat> and now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. Sorry. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Israel fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. 
and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Speaking now in the realm of spiritual things. In the face of a great battle, Paul calls us to stand. Verse 10 will begin. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the, de of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing. Father, I thank you that you reveal yourself in scripture, and I pray that this morning you would reveal yourself to us in power by the Spirit, that, Lord, we would know that we have heard from God uh, for our circumstance, the reality of our life, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered uh, why the Christian life uh, has to be so hard? Why is it so hard to have a good marriage, much less an intimate and joy-filled one? Why is it so hard to raise children, much less godly, um, gracious, generous children? Uh, why is work so often deflating? Why is sanctification so hard? You would think uh, that if God wants us to be sanctified, which He certainly does, that He would make it easier. And why do troubles seem to multiply? It's one thing to have the washing machine break down, but why does it break down when you have two kids throwing up with the flu and still reeling from a recent fight with your husband and the dog just made a mess on the carpet? Why does that have to happen? Have you ever been where you just want to throw your hands up and say, this is ridiculous? Why does it have to be this way? You see, those who are followers of Christ, we can carry with us an unexamined assumption that the Christian life ought to be easier. But in our text this morning, Paul reminds us of some critical truths. One is that we are in the midst of a battle with the spiritual forces of evil, and we will be in that battle until the day that we die. It doesn't get easier. Hardship and heartache and conflict will be an ongoing, defining, unavoidable reality of our life until Jesus comes again. Remember what Paul would say to the churches as he went around encouraging them, we're told, in the book of Acts, and he would tell them, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Paul wants us to know that this life of following Jesus will have difficulties. It'll be hard. And so he begins our text by now saying, finally. 
He's wrapping up this wonderful letter where he's explained the gospel and its glory, and he's explained the principles of the Christian life in their very practical truth and reality. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to press home. Uh, If we're going to actually live this life in the glory of what God has done for us and in the truth of all that we have been called to in Jesus as we live together as in the church, in unity, and in our homes, in love and submission and obedience for the children, if we're going to honor God at work, if we're actually going to live that life, there's something we need to know. It's not going to be easy. We're going to be in constant battle, and we're going to need strength from on high. Living out the Christian life is not a a simple matter of taking Christian doctrine and and applying the appropriate biblical principle. You don't build a Christian life like a Lego set. You just follow the instructions and slap the pieces together. It it would be more like trying to build a Lego set while uh, you're on a stormy beach with waves constantly crashing over you. Because we have sworn adversaries Spiritual enemies who know us, they know where we live, they know our weaknesses, and they are, in truth, out to derail and destroy us. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Uh, These are not mythical realities that people used to believe in a long time ago, but now in our scientific age, we realize there's no such thing as demons or um, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, No, Paul wants us to understand that The same world he lived in, it's the same world we live in today. And these spiritual forces of evil are are as real as the air we breathe, the ground we walk on. And he wants us to understand that they are opposed to us, they scheme against us, they cripple our joy, they throttle our fruitfulness, they undermine our faith, and we've been called to stand. We've been called to stand in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us just to be thankful here, maybe, that Paul doesn't hide from us the reality of the, the warfare that belongs to every Christian. You see, if, if you didn't know that you were in a battle, you could be easily confused, and many Christians are confused. The natural tendency is to assume that if you do it right then our Christian life will, for the most part, be a straightforward, fairly straightforward, there'll be bumps, but a fairly straightforward progression of success. But when you find that your Christian life doesn't look like a straightforward progression of success, but but more like a train wreck, you can easily assume that A, you're not doing it right, or B, you are doing it right and it doesn't work. And there are all sorts of former professing Christians who came to exactly those conclusions. They tried to live the Christian life the way that they were taught. They tried to keep the rules. They they, they had the right theology. But it didn't work. It wasn't sufficient for the battles that they were facing. It It wasn't able to overcome the lusts of their flesh, the allurement of the world, the temptation of the devil. They didn't realize that they were in a battle. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the seed that's sown. And some falls on the path, and the birds pick it up. And then some falls on the rocky ground. And then uh, some falls on, uh, on hard soil, and others in good soil. 
The rocky ground, if you remember, Jesus says the rocky ground are those who hear the word and they believe it, but in the face of tribulation and persecution, they fall away. They didn't expect tribulation. They didn't expect persecution. That wasn't part of their categories when they thought about being a Christian. And so the finally here really matters. People lose their faith over this by failing to understand what the Christian life is actually like. And so Paul now has explained the gospel, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 3. He's explained the principles of living for Christ in chapters 4 and 5. But if that gospel and those principles are actually going to transform our life, if they're going to gain any traction, we need to put on the armor of God. And that's where Paul now goes as he concludes his letter. In these three verses this morning, we're going to see first uh, the command, be strong in the Lord, the instruction, how do you do that? Well, you put on the armor of God, and then thirdly, why would you do that? And the reason is so that you might withstand and, and stand in the evil day, that you might stand against the devil. So, so the what, a command, how, the instruction, and the reason why. Let's begin with the command, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul and the way he thinks about being a Christian is that he often talks about spiritual power. Uh, not sure we have a well-developed category for spiritual power, but, uh, but Paul does. When we think about the Christian life, we tend to think about either theology or piety. If you read uh, Jim Drew's uh, testimony, he'll talk about, I went to church, had the right theology, um, had appropriate piety, but it, but it wasn't significant, it wasn't enough. Uh, well, that's exactly what Paul wants us to understand, that uh, when Paul thinks about a true, God-honoring, fruit-bearing, gospel-transformed life, his mind doesn't first go to theology or piety, but first to the issue of God-given spiritual power. He, he thinks of, when he thinks about a Christian, he thinks about someone who's been chosen by God, united to Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and those things are empowering a person to live a different way. If, if you think I'm making it up, you can look at chapter 1, verse 15 where Paul prays for the church that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know the hope to which they've been called, the riches of their glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. The greatness of his power. Paul, Paul wants Christians to understand that the power of God has been given to them according to the working of His great might. Praise it again in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why does Paul keep praying for power, spiritual power? Because it's not possible to live the Christian life apart from the power of God. Unless the Lord build the house, they that build it labor in vain. You can build a religious life apart from God. You can go to church and, 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 and believe religious things and do religious things. You can even build a fairly moral life 
apart from the power of God. But you cannot, you cannot build a Christian life, a life that bears fruit for the glory of God, a life where, the, uh, where you're experiencing transformation that you cannot experience that apart from the power of God. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing that has a value, any value to God. But abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You know, you can think about a person who uh, has a brand new car and it's been dropped off and it's in the park, in, in the driveway, and they get in and they start it up, uh, and it, it doesn't start, it just turns over. Um, well, it's a beautiful car, the tires are all there, they open the hood, there's the engine, uh, everything seems to be in its proper place. Why doesn't it go? Well, check the gas tank. Because if there's no fuel in the gas tank, all that shiny chrome and on all those parts and pieces can't do anything. It has to have fuel. Well, the same for the believer and the Christian. We cannot live a Christian life that bears fruit for the glory of God apart from the power of God. So when Paul says, finally, he's saying, now get this. It's critical. Understand this. To, to live and experience the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ in your very life, in the reality of your circumstances, you're going to need to be strong in the Lord and in, in the strength of His might. And the, and the verb tense there is ongoing. Keep on being strong in the Lord. Keep on being strengthened by His might. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? It's easy to say. What does it mean? What does it look like when, when someone is strong in the Lord? When they're being empowered by the, by the power of God through the Holy Spirit? What does it look like? Well, we read about it in 2 Chronicles 20. It looks like overcoming fear in a time of trouble. So Jehoshaphat uh, hears the news that this vast army is coming, and, and it, he doesn't have to think very long to realize that they have no power to stand against this army. They have no resources to call upon except God. And notice in his prayer, Oh Lord, are you not the God in heaven who rules? Now he's not reminding God, he's reminding himself. He's reminding the people of who God is, what their God is like, what their God has promised to them. Did you not give us this land to be our inheritance forever? And, and uh, God, will you not judge your enemies? See, he's He's just laying hold of things he knows to be true about God. And he's laying hold of things he knows to be true about himself. We don't have any power. Here we stand, your people, helpless. Nothing in our hands we bring. But Lord, our eyes are on you. That's what it looks like. And the answer comes back, well, you're not going to have to fight this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. Just stand firm. Stand firm. That's what Paul says. Hold your ground. See the salvation of the Lord. So being strong and uh, being strengthened by his might, it, it looks exactly like what Jehoshaphat does. If you want another, um, other examples, go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Pastor Greg Norfleet uh, did a devotional for the session meeting this past, and the elders uh, and the deacons um, this past week, and he, and he uh, read from Hebrews 11, 11, 
where it says that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And he just pointed out, so in, in every one of our lives, we we're stand here in the gap between the, what our circumstances are telling us and what the Word of God tells us. And which one are we going to believe? Which, which story are we going to cling to? The story of your circumstances, your failures, your sin, your enemies, or the circumstances of what the Word of God actually says? Well, Sarah, we're told, had to make that choice. Is she going to, is she going to live according to the story of her, of her old barren body? Or is she going to live according to the story of God's promise to her and to Abraham? And we read that that, um, she received power to conceive as she believed that he was faithful who had made the promise. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. To stand in the Lord simply means to take the promises intentionally. What has God told me? What is true? And what power then can I experience and expect as I simply believe what, that God is faithful to do what He has promised. What has God promised you, child of God? God has promised to forgive every one of your sins and to forgive it to the uttermost as far as the east is from the west. God has promised to be present with you when you are in a time of trial. Maybe this morning you're going through the waters as we read about in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and, and, and God promises, I'm going to be with you there. Right? When, when through the deep waters your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. That's what God promises. He promises to finish the work that he's begun. I, I love that song, all the way my Savior leads me. I love the word all. Not most of the way. All the way, all the way home, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask besides? I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has promised is faithful and he will surely do it. Is that the God that you believe in? The God who has promised and the God who is faithful to his promise. Is that the God you hold to? Like Jehoshaphat and like Sarah and like the heroes of faith that you read about in chapter 11 of Hebrews. This is what Paul is calling us to. To be strong in the Lord is to intentionally equip our minds with all that God has done and all that God has promised to me in Jesus Christ. And no matter how the devil rages against it, no matter how my conscience rages against it, no matter how weak I know myself to be, this stands. This is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so we take those truths to ourselves, to the circumstances of our life. How do we become strong in the Lord? Well, Paul gives us instruction, put on the whole armor of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because, Lord willing, we'll be looking at that next as we move through this text. But uh, Paul wants us to know that God has prepared armor, spiritual armor for his dearly beloved children. Boys and girls, uh, it's summertime now and it's wonderful, but uh, in a few months, it's not going to be summertime. It's going to start to get cold. And um, your mother, boys and girls, is already thinking about 
how to equip you for the cold. And so she's going to buy boots and gloves and coats and hats, all the stuff that you're going to need um, to be protected from the cold. But boys and girls, let me ask you a question. Maybe, maybe um, you've got a closet somewhere where all that stuff is already hanging and, and waiting for you. Uh, but maybe you even get a nice new coat. But boys and girls, will that coat be any help to you hanging in the closet? Nope, it won't. That coat can do nothing for you while it's hanging in the closet, no matter how new and shiny it might be. The only way that coat is going to help you is if you do what? Put it on. And it's exactly the same for a believer. There are many Christians who open the closet and they look at all that God has done and they, they, they note it, they record it, they agree with it, they affirm it, and then they close the closet. Paul says, put on the armor of God. The truths of God will be of no help to you until you take them off the shelf of your mind and put them into the reality of your world, your life. That's where you find the power. That's, that's where their protecting ability is, is revealed. Paul repeats this command in verse 13. And Lord willing, as I said, we'll be looking at that um, in the future. But for now, this reminds us that, that God has, he has prepared everything we need to live this Christian life. Everything we need for a life of godliness, Paul says. Peter says in 2 Peter 1. It's all there. We simply need to put it on. And that reminds us that we, we do have a responsibility as Christians. Uh, we need to take responsibility for our sanctification, for our growth. God is, uh, is, has promised to do the work. He will do the work. But friends, our God uses means to do his work. When he promises to make the crops grow, he sends rain. When he promises to equip you with everything good for doing his will, he sends you means. Remember what it says in Jehoshaphat, where Jehoshaphat says to the people, remember what, remember what God has said, remember what the prophets have said, believe what the prophets have spoken, and you will be established. You will be delivered. Put on the armor of God. We'll look at that more again um, Lord willing, as we move forward. But we have a responsibility. Now, why do we have to do this? And we'll wrap with this. Well, Paul says, verse 11b, so you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, so that you may be, may be able to stand. The, you see, the, the devil is, an, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he's real, and he knows us. He's at work. Um, the devil, uh, he exercises his power primarily through deceit, by lying. So the devil will lie and make sin look harmless. And the devil will lie and make obedience in this case seem irrational or impossible. And, and will give you justifications for why in this instance, this sin really isn't sin. He does it all the time. The devil will lie to you and, and, and explain why in, in your particular circumstance, repentance is not necessary. That God understands. He lies all the time. He presents himself as the angel of light. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And he's at work. Someone sent me an email from this church just this week about uh, the increase of practice of paganism right here in West Michigan, particularly among women. 
Some who were born and raised in a Christian church and now are embracing paganism. How is that happening? Because the forces, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm are at work. Every heresy and false teaching that has ever come into the church has come by the work of the devil. And he's lying to us all the time. He he lies to us that life consists in material abundance. He lies to us that that our sin of of gossip or our sin of, of jealousy or anger or sexual sin, that it's harmless. He's lying to our culture in mass about what sexuality is about and what it's for. It's all schemes and lies of the devil and all of it producing devastation. Billions of people lost eternally because of the lies of the devil. But I just wonder, are are we awake and aware to the the particular lies that we have believed? Do do we have a a sense of what the devil is seeking to do in our own life? Do Do you have, if I ask you this morning, what's the devil doing in your life today? What's he trying to do? Do you have any sense of that? If I would ask you, what's the devil trying to do to your family? Do you have an, would you be able to respond? Do you know? Are you aware of the devil's schemes? If we were to ask, what, what's the devil trying to do at Harvest Church? Do we know? We should know. Paul, Paul says we should know that we, we need to be awake and aware to the schemes of the devil and, and able to take our stand against these things. And Paul explains why we so desperately need this armor of God because, verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers and the authorities and the, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the problems, you see, that we face are not, it's not flesh and blood stuff. We're not up against big tech. We're not up against, you know, uh, liberals and progressives. We're not up against um, uh, hardcore right-wing, uh, you know, nationalists, whatever. It's, it's not about flesh and blood, we assume that it is, that if, if, if we could just get, you know, change these people or, or, or these realities, this, this, these politics, we could just navigate those things, we'll have peace, right? We'll have tranquility. Well, Paul just, Christian, wake up. The problem in your life is, doesn't have a person's name on it. It doesn't mean that people don't sin against us. Of course they do, and we sin against others. But in the great issue of your salvation, in the, in the critical issue of your sanctification, your battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And they are very strong. Every word Paul uses here is meant to denote power. You're up against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Have you felt those powers in your life? Have you ever wondered why you are powerless to beat back your addiction? Maybe you've just taken that as natural and normal. It's not natural and normal. Not if you're a Christian. Have you, did you ever wonder why you feel powerless to forgive people when they wound you or powerless to actually love your wife the way God calls you to or submit to your husband as you know you should? Do you ever wonder why you keep losing your temper with the kids even though you know you shouldn't? We're up against spiritual powers. 
Have you ever wondered why your besetting sin seems to arise when you're tired or lonely or depressed? Well, is it possible that the devil knows when you're tired, when you're lonely, when you're depressed, and that he tempts you precisely at your weakest moment? Of course that's possible. Of course that's exactly what takes place. Russell Moore in his book, Tempted and Tried, um, tells of a time of temptation, and he, and he asks this question, what if we don't just fall into temptation? What if we are being actively led into temptation, where we actually have a spiritual force at work trying to shepherd us into our destruction, a fall? Well, Paul wants us to wake up and, and says, put on the armor of God, because without it we are powerless to stand against the devil's lies. Without the armor of God, you see, the ways of God just won't resonate. You'll believe it in some vague way, but in the specific circumstance of your life, it won't be light. It won't be a foundation. It won't have traction in your soul. And we can waste our life having a knowledge of God, but never experiencing the power of it. Paul talks about that. Of, of people who, they, they have a knowledge of the truth, but they've never experienced the power of the truth. And so people are failing and failing to stand. And God calls us to stand. Not, we don't, he's not calling us to be superheroes. He's just calling us to stand in the strength of Christ. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. You see, friends, God's will in the gospel is not just to send Jesus uh, to be crucified for your sin. And God's will in the gospel is not even to have Jesus crucified for your sin and raised to life for your justification, as wonderful as that truth is. But God's will in the gospel is to have Christ die for your sin and raised to life for your justification and then enthroned on high with all power and glory for your sanctification and your glorification. So that the work that he began when he died in that cross, he will complete when he brings you into his presence without spot and with great joy. That's the whole gospel. And that's what we need to hold to. So I love what Jesus says in Matthew 28 to his disciples. All authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, there's a whole life you see in that therefore. All authority and power belongs to Jesus and he has given it. He gives that power to equip us. His enthronement is for our equipping. His authority is for our use in the cause of the Christian life. So do you feel like a weak Christian? You find that your efforts at godliness often fall flat. Well, the wonderful news of the gospel is there's a gospel for that. There is a Christ. And, and as we hold to this Jesus in faith, believing what he said, we receive power to do what we thought was impossible to do. Sarah received power to conceive something that was humanly impossible and that's not just this weird thing that happened to a sister a long time ago. That is the normal way that God works in the lives of his children. He gives us his power that we might do the impossible, that we might actually forgive from the heart, we, that we would actually love our enemies, that we would be putting on the fruits of gentleness and peace and patience, that, that marriages could be fundamentally, radically healed and restored, not by some technique, but by humility, by an embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that is sufficient, and the transforming power <clears throat> that is available. It actually is supposed to work this way, and it does work this way 
as we put on the armor of God. Friend, I, I have a con- just a concern for the church of so many believing people, good people, who, serious people, who are serious about their orthodoxy, serious about their theology, striving in their personal piety, and yet disappointed, despairing maybe even, because it's so hard and it doesn't seem to be working. And, and it, it just feels like pieces are maybe falling off or your life is maybe falling apart. And we've forgotten that Jesus is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. The armor has been given to us. Not to work miracles, but to stand. And to experience God working miracles as we stand. Let me ask you this morning, where are you believing the lies of the devil? Maybe you're here with a cynical heart and you're thinking, this just doesn't work for me. That's a lie of the devil. Maybe you're here with a bitter heart because you sense you think that you deserve more or better. That's a lie of the devil. Maybe you're here just awash in failure and guilt and shame and grief uh, and, and um, you, you would readily admit that you don't deserve anything from God and, and you don't, you're, it's hard for you to, admit, to believe that God would be gracious and pour out his love and favor on you. Well, you're, be- you're believing a lie of the devil. God calls us to hold on to gospel truth. In every trial, God is present. For every sin, there's a Savior. His grace is sufficient no matter what we're facing. Our failures are not our ultimate truth. Christ's victory is. And he who promised is faithful, and he's promised us wonderful things, that he will sustain us, and he will equip us as we hold fast to him, and he will lead us one day to the glorious rest of our eternal home. Friends, hold fast. God has promised, and he is faithful. Amen. Father in heaven, you know the hearts that are in this room this morning. You know, you know the wreckage or just the broken places in our life. You know the sin, the shame, the guilt. You know the addictions. You know the unbelief. But Father, we are hungry to know your power. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We are hungry, oh God, to experience your strength in our weakness. We're hungry to to have the ability to do things that in ourselves we know we have no ability to do. As we hold to Jesus and and to what you've promised us in him. And Father, I I pray that that your word would, would just come home to every heart here in every circumstance and that we would stand today in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the grief, the loss, maybe the despair, but we would stand today in faith, believing that he who promised is faithful. And with, with heads up and eyes raised up to, to see our Jesus, we would leave this place strengthened in the power of his might. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together, O Church Arise.
and put your armor on. to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all 
Till then, amen.